0: Hello and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been.
1: Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. It's so good to be with y'all. Uh, Tommy here. Got Becca on the other side of town because we're recording this online. How's it going, Becca? Hey, hey,
0: welcome to social distancing.
1: <laughs> we are more than our six feet apart, so we are uh, following guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> and then some. We have our Zoom up and... In- And I am Zoom meeting out, so. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Um, oh my
2: gosh.
1: I'm really excited about today's conversation. A few weeks ago, we met this really awesome person by the name of Corey Gaston. Just want to introduce you to him today. Corey is a professional musician. He shared the stage with a variety of varietal mix of some of the world's finest musicians, including Maynard Ferguson... Uh, Ron Cannoli, Travis Cottrell, Tom Smith, Donald Lawrence, and the Tri-City Singers, Morit Brown-Clark, what? And Bill and Gloria Gaither. In addition to these five musicians, he was asked to tour with legendary artist Prince and the New Power Generation in 2012, but chose his career as a Christian educator over full-time touring. Corey holds a master's degree in organizational leadership from Clark Summit University and a bachelor's degree in theology from Freedom Bible College. And he is currently pursuing his doctor of strategic leadership at Liberty University. In addition to that, he has graduated from the U.S. Naval School of Music and holds certification in trumpet performance. The word proximity, according to Merriam-Webster, is the quality or state of being proximate or closeness. Most would assume that this only deals with distance from one point to another, but they would miss a much broader and deep, deeper meaning of the word. Uh, Corey is the author of a book called Proximity. This work will focus on how to, how close you do or do not find yourself to others within your community, churches, neighborhoods, civic or, organizations, and etc. The work of proximity is kingdom work, work designed to close the gaps that present themselves mm-hmm. specifically within the body of Christ. This has always been a uh, purpose to draw us closer, with the hopes of drawing those not in relationship with Christ closer to that point because of testimony of present unity. Welcome to Permission to Be, Corey. Mm-hmm. What an honor and pleasure to have you. Hello. That was a marathon bio. <laughs> like you are so accomplished, my friend. You are so oh, accomplished. I That's incredible. It.
2: I appreciate it, man. appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me.
1: You know, we were having a conversation beforehand and also like this is this is sort of uh, David and I, David Roberts, our other co-hosts, we talk frequently about what we were talking about like titles and credentials and and sort of these qualifications. Um, and that you have so many titles and so many credentials, and you are so qualified. Uh, but do you want to give them a little insight into some of the conversation we were having surrounding that before?
2: Yeah, so we were talking uh, a little bit before about a group um, of of ladies, very qualified ladies um, that speak. Um, truth to power and organizations, specifically within the body of Christ. And uh, they speak directly to the history of complicity and supremacy and things of that nature. And without their credentials, I doubt they would be invited to do the speaking in the places that they're asked uh, to be a part of. And it's ironic to me that from some of the places that they receive their credential um, are Going they're going right back to the places that support them to speak about these power structures, and um, if they were just ladies in the in the in the congregation, mm-hmm. um, or just in the back row of the of the sanctuary, they would not be given the time of day. But because of their pedigree, they are validated, and I think that's unfortunate that you have to have these things that then qualify you to speak about things that matter. And things that directly affect you. So akin to that is, um, this this may sound funny, but to speak about my experience as a black man, my 41 years of living is not enough in the body of work. Um, Mm -hmm. So my 41 years, in addition to my education and the research that I've read by other people, um, is then thus what qualifies me. And so it's not necessarily my experience alone, which cannot be um, discounted it's it's my personal mm-hmm. experience when I was in grad school um, I remember reading this book it was in one of my counseling classes and a lot of the class did not enjoy the content of this particular book it was called Counseling the Culturally Diverse by Dr. Sue and Sue and th- the majority of their research was first person account
0: hmm.
2: right yeah But the irony is that if I were to give the same account to the people in the class, my firsthand account, it was not validated unless it was in book form. And I found it ironic that we were dissecting and digesting firsthand accounts that had just been published by two PhDs. And Mm. the body of work was all personal experience. And so I'm like, hold on, guys. We could have saved $198 on this book and you could have gone to Starbucks for two hours and $5 and you could have gotten the same experiential recount that we just read in this book that you didn't like, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. for a lot less money and a lot less credential, you could have gotten the same thing by speaking to a number of of minorities in our country that would have given you the same um, eyewitness accounts of their life and so um that's kind of the irony in the whole validation of a person's experience and, and perspectives that um we 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 give credibility to the educational aspect of it mm-hmm. even if it's personal and so that yeah it's just kind of that that dichotomy there
1: mm. Mm. yeah i was it was interesting someone so i was reading somebody's perspective and they were talking about how, not not that I, I don't view it as a negative thing, living sort of in the information age or the education age, but it's interesting how we prioritize education over freedom, mm-hmm. but then also put controls in place on who has access to that education. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the first time we chatted, that was something that came up in terms of one of like – I've always thought about like, oh, it would be really cool to go into a doctoral program or something, but I also feel a bit of resistance to that for that reason of, I don't necessarily want to exist in a world or a space where the predominant culture of whiteness says, well, you need this, this, and this for us to even hear and see you. And you had some interesting perspectives on even that, in terms of uh, how people see and hear you,
2: it's interesting. So, you know, things a lot of things have changed since uh, we first talked. Well, not much has changed, but just more information, more insight. And W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, he fought during a totally different time that you know none of us were mm-hmm. alive to remember. But he, in essence, what my grandparents would say, you know, he played the game to get ahead, and once he got ahead, you know, he changed the game. For those that could come behind them, right? So Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, yeah. they suffered an entire type of discrimination that I'll never know, but they did so in such a way that then afforded others the opportunity to come behind them. So now we can speak about them mm-hmm. and their struggles and the legacies that they've uh, that they left, you know, from. Uh, these wonderful uh, historically black colleges and universities that have, you know, wrought men and women through generation after generation because they played the game. And so I think of being able to do stuff today to help shape and shift and change the climate for those that can come after me or even while I'm still yet living is important. And so, yeah, I mean, truthfully, I mean, getting the education is important. But unfortunately, being heard is much more important. So doing the work, doing that necessary sacrifice so that those that hear you who have the power to affect change do is really, really important. And so um, being in those spaces, being in those conversations, being asked to the table doesn't come Mm. by happenstance because face it the people that are at those tables are qualified and so to be there with them to give voice and to give insight is incredible and especially when you begin to see the needle moving you know Mm. and so Dr. Du Bois and uh, Booker T. Washington they did the struggle as well in their own way at a different time but now we can look back and we can see the third good marshals and we can see the people that have come up through the the ranks. We can see uh, the Alex Haley's, you know, and we can see their impact and contributions to our society um, and how that has moved the needle yet further. And so I love one of my favorite quotes is from Denzel Washington. In order to do what you want to do, you have to do what you have to do. And that's so important, you know, so students hate school, but they want the car, right? They want the They want the job. They want the house. They may hate shooting layups, but they want to make it to the NBA. Mm -hmm. Right. So you got to do these necessary things to get to where you want to go. And so once you're there, just don't waste
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is such a profound framing Mm. of sort of the motivation um, where I think the experience of blackness can have us in different emotions at different times where we want to be rebels in one moment in challenging every aspect of the system, but then also advocates and reformers and changing the system uh, from within. That was such an insightful reflection on what was required for some of our historical greats to have to reform and change the system of white supremacy culture from, from within, and not necessarily a perspective in my young millennial ignorance that I would <laughs> <laughs> necessarily uh, have thought about. So thank you for articulating
2: yeah, man. Yeah, it's my yeah. pleasure.
0: How does that? How does that sit with you, Becca?
2: Hmm.
0: It feels like a double-edged sword for the Black community because there is pedigrees that need to be obtained to sit at the table, but the amount of work for um, the BIPOC community to get to the point of even obtaining a degree is so much greater than it is for a person who lacks melanin in their skin. There are systems in place that there's not a lot of people in the BIPOC community who maybe have a relative who is going to scoot them in to the right college to get the right education. How does it sit with me? It makes me frustrated. It makes me frustrated because it tells me in very clear answers why there is lack of diversity at the larger table. Yeah.
1: I mean, and you brought up such a great point just with even our education system. I love in How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. He talks about how the education system was built to uphold and preserve white supremacy Mm -hmm. and to sort of white supremacy and also uh, my partner also talks about how even some of the practices of like walking in a straight line is just training kids for like factory work to be producers, to be workers for those that hold power or or the capital in a, a capitalist society, but even down to like standardized testing was meant for whiteness. To succeed and to thrive, the way that mm-hmm. we teach people to read, the way we teach math, and how we teach people how to take a test, even mm-hmm. measure that as some metric or lens of competency, but throw away all of the other gifts and talents and intellect uh, that is able to come bubble up forth in other ways.
0: Mm hmm.
1: Corey, like, are you like a dean of students? You work in the ed- in education, right? right? Like, did you get to? I don't I don't know if you're familiar with how to be anti-racist, uh, or if you were able to read that. But like, I guess like let's talk about some of those inequities as they like arise or present themselves in the education system.
2: So education is a quagmire. It is such a quagmire. So what we have the tendency to do in education is we try to fix a problem from the point that we find ourselves in now, mm. right? So we don't address root causes well. Mm. Um, We do not look at the histories that have, it's like a doctor, right? So I'll use um, a current situation that I'm currently dealing dealing with, right? So I got high blood pressure. It's hereditary. I didn't know it um, because I'm adopted. And so my high blood pressure took effect and really made me really, really dizzy. Uh, and headaches and left arm was tingling on the edge of a stroke had no clue mm. and so i called my doctor went to the hospital and had my blood pressure taken and it was 196 over 102
1: oh lord have mercy. you just said that to a nurse and i'm like oh Bro. where's the libido where's the hydrolysis
2: yes you understand <laughs> the severity of that now an average joe schmoe you tell them those two numbers systolic over diastolic they don't understand that Doctors and nurses want your blood pressure 120 over 80 at the highest mm-hmm. and somewhere lower possible. And so for a person who was hypertensive but did not know it, I was living with this struggle. It just living in life. Uh, and then my doctor told me, if you don't make a change, sir, you will die before the age of 50. So I began to correct something then. But the root of that was something that I could not control, my heredity. Right. Mm-hmm. So, But yeah. what I can do now is to change, make changes today, to live in such a way that would afford me the opportunity to see those years and beyond. And then, of course, I have children that are also sharing my heredity that I can help inform and educate them, say, hey, this is something you're going to have to worry about later on in the future. And it may show up in this way or it may not because you have mommy and daddy both to contend with. And who knows what may show up later in mm-hmm. life. This was never an issue for me. I mean, this was not the first time I'd ever gone to a doctor, right? So it popped up out of the blue. Mm-hmm. But now I began to, to exercise and to eat better. And of course, the doc put me instantly on medication <laughs> yeah. because they had to, had to regulate that that lower, that diastolic, you know, so diastolic dysfunction, had to get that under, under control. But once we corrected it, I then had to consider that there was a history there that got me there. And so Poor eating choices, uh, sedentary lifestyle, and things of that nature. Even though I was a marine prior, it didn't matter. That work was done, mm. and so I needed to get back into it and make some changes. Right? We do the same thing in education without ever looking behind us. We fix today. We say, "Well, students have low achieving test scores, or these students aren't performing well. Let's fix that problem mm. without looking at the history of the problems." Right? So. Uh, Another thing I did when I was in grad school is I I researched um, the inequities of students and how they're disciplined um, based off of culture, color, and gender. And uh, three to one, black girls, brown girls are disciplined harsher than their counterparts, three to one. And so like nationwide, nationwide. So so for the same infraction in the same school, uh, black and brown girls are, are treated harsher three times to one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the, that's the summation of the study. But but if you look at the history of how we got to some of these uh, inequalities, um, when Brown v. Board of Education was, was signed in 1954, and then Ruby Bridges desegregates the first school in 1960, mm-hmm. the average age of the teacher was 40 and a half. So in 1960, that means that these teachers were born around 1920, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of biases that come with a person through the history of our country that have informed their view of people, their view of children, what some kids can and cannot learn. Let's not forget eugenics theory, which was medically accepted Mm. in our country, that said that certain people based off of ethnicity alone are intrinsically smarter than others. Mm. And even though that's Mm. false, that was an ingrained truth, air quote, truth, that pervaded throughout the culture. And so you have educators that are now welcoming students by welcoming I me. Mean, they were forced by federal law to allow students yeah. of color into these spaces. But the first day that that student, Ruby Bridges, entered the doors of the school in Louisiana, 300 students left. So, and the footage is atrocious if you mm. want to take a peek at it. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have all these biases and all these things that shape uh, the way that people treat other people in school. So we talk about separate and equal right? Plessy v. Ferguson and all of these landmark cases that have built a system of inequality and now when we're in schools we see how some schools are funded and some schools are underfunded. Some schools are resourced and some schools are under resourced. Some communities are are, are treated better and some communities are treated worse and it's never quite over the top uh, like overt in your face. It's more uh, you know insidious and so these things still have effects. So when you look at failing schools they're not just failing they're failing because they don't have adequate resource they've not been adequately resourced they're failing because the students that are coming to the school are undernourished or malnourished and so when they're in the classrooms they can't really focus because they're hungry and so the amount of time that they're able to do homework and study depends largely on the parents education that they go home to study with or if their parents are even home because of working multiple jobs because 76 percent of america's mm. working poor work more than one job oh, yeah. so yeah in in neighborhoods that are under resourced and neighborhoods that are undernourished and they're underserved you're going to have these problems so you just can't throw money at the problem today you have to look at the history of it and figure out how can we uh, divert future generations from dealing with the same things. Mm-hmm. But if you never look at the history, you never look at the past, and we only try to fix today, then I mean, you're, you're putting a, bl- a band aid on uh, high blood pressure. <laughs> yeah. You're not, you know, mm-hmm. if I only took Lisinopril and Metoprolol which are the medications that I take, and didn't make a change, I would still have high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't actually, you know, correct anything inside my body. I would only, be giving it you know a medicinal change right Mm -hmm. my goal is to not stay on medication my goal is to get off and live a healthy lifestyle so i do the things that i have to Mm -hmm. (laughs) in order to eat potato pie in thanksgiving (laughs) because (laughs) yes Uh, potato pie (laughs) right so so i I mean so it's i don't think it's either uh either or i think it's both and you got to Address the, the situation today, but you also got to see how we got here, and let's fix those things so that they don't repeat in the future, and so that we can circumnavigate all that stuff. But that was a very long answer to get to your to get to that point.
0: So, a little bit of a somber question and a point out here is you've laid all that out for us, and now we are dealing globally with covid and so now we have parents who are considered essential workers um, Mm -hmm. and their jobs and they still may be doing one to three jobs and considered Mm -hmm. essential workers and now you have all the children at home and Mm -hmm. they are being expected to continue online schooling which let's just be really honest, that's absolutely ludicrous for most of the working class. Mm-hmm. It concerns me greatly. And I do sit in a very privileged position. I am home. I can work from home. So can my husband. And but I am white, upper middle class. And so there's a fear that this is going to put us backwards several steps it's going to put us backwards and it's also going to bring a huge spotlight on the realities of how our schools function and we can no longer hide from the fact that our schools are struggling and that they're not built or they're not they are not meant to go forward for every economic, socioeconomic status. They're not meant to go forward in a cultural way because there's many parents, they're non-English speaking, and they're now expected to teach their children American elementary, American middle. And I don't know. I'd love to know your thoughts on that.
2: So I think if nothing else, this pandemic is pointing out the flaws in several systems within our economy, within the country, and then of course our global economies as well but specifically in the realm of education I believe that this will forever change the way that we do education mm. and the reason I, I believe that is because it's already pointed out and just in the three to four weeks that we've already been out of school and some of the new norms have taken taken residence I believe that you saw within the first couple of weeks school systems and districts trying to find a way to feed those kids yeah feed those' under- is because they realized uh, that things that some people consider to be a no-duh, yeah, kids got to eat, but how? If they're at school mm-hmm. and the, 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 the population of Title One school attendees, it does, does not change because the students are at home. I mean, yeah. you're, you were broke at school, but That's you're true. also going to be broke at home. That's and mm-hmm. that does not change. So you begin to see efforts World uh, nationwide to try to put into place school districts delivering with school buses and school bus drivers school lunches. And so I remember here within my area in Cabarrus County in North Carolina, which is where I'm located, they put up um, drive up spots to where parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles could get their students to one of those locations, about 15 or 16 spots around the county, mm. to where they could come and get breakfast and lunch, right? Mm-hmm. I believe that shaped a little bit of the narrative because people that were uh, let me let me be honest and be kind people that may have been against school lunch provision for students because remember not only before this pandemic we had people getting you know bills sent to their home for for overdue lunch account mm, mm, like, mm. Right. so we had that but that went away when, just,
1: I got triggered
2: <laughs> so and then there were some that were like well if you can't pay you can't eat. Right. And that was some of the things that I heard and saw on my friends list. And unfortunately, when this hit, it hit differently for people that were so dogmatic one side or, or, or the other. And I believe it put on display our, our humanity to where people became genuinely concerned, hopefully for their neighbors, in a way that if that was your kid, you want them to eat. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't yeah. want me kids. To, to go hungry because they're not in school because this is something that no one can help. And I think if nothing else, that's what triggered our um, compassion to to be invoked a, a little greater. It's because it wasn't just one population of kids is everybody. Yeah. And so there was a study that was done by the University of Chicago about ten, maybe twelve years ago, and it spoke about mirrored emotion. And Tommy, you'll get a kick out of this. Remember when the nurse was arrested a couple of years ago for doing her job in Minnesota?
1: Oh yeah, right. It, we were hot. hot. It was. It was actually. It was the first time for me personally that I felt like a lot of my coworkers experienced just a fraction. Of the rage that I do uh, when I see police brutality on the the news. You hit the
2: nail on the head because everybody in your sphere of influence that are also uh, employed and bear the same title of nurse felt like they were being physically attacked themselves because they said, well, if that was me, I would have done the same thing that she did. And how dare they treat her that way? The University of Chicago School of Psychology labeled that as mirrored emotion. And mirrored emotion basically it sums up that when you see yourself in a situation, you can put yourself there, so the the ability to empathize is is greater. Mm-hmm. So for those of us men of color who see other men of color that are gunned down in the streets or mm-hmm. treated unfairly for doing like very normal things like Starbucks, you know those things are not far from our reach because it could literally be us at any given time, and so when. My nurse friends, red, yellow, black, and white, all saw this lady in Minnesota being harassed and then arrested for mm-hmm. doing her job. They instantly empathized because they saw herself in the situation. In the same way, when we began to, to realize that students of every color, of mm-hmm. every nationality, mm-hmm. were going to be hungry, everybody's heart broke because it wasn't just one community of these poor people. That can't afford lunch. It's also the, the middle class kids whose parents can't afford to, to feed mm. them as much as they need to be fed at home. So the school system and now all these social programs that some people boohoo are now needed, their necessities. And so it has shifted in our minds, I believe, some of the narratives that we've built up around systems because now it affected everyone. And when it affects everyone and you're part of the everyone, I believe that no one is as quick to be so black and white on issues as we were before. Mm. And so I think that's why it will change the landscape and hopefully it will change the landscape of access. We realize that Internet can be free and these Internet service companies uh, realize that every student who needs it at home to in in order to, to finish this fourth quarter, well, we'll provide it for free. This Zoom call that I'm on right now, I have a free account because I'm an educator, because I need to communicate with my students. There are so many things. And if I I were an investor or a CEO of one of these companies, I'm not certain how many millions upon millions of dollars I'm losing or if I'm losing money at all. I, I honestly don't know. But it seems to me that some of these things are very arbitrary Yeah, because... There's a lot of things that we would charge an arm and two legs for that are now being given away without, without prejudice. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, well, why is this so easy now? And I think the answer to that is because it's affecting everyone in a different way. And so I don't know, but I, I'm, I am concerned for next year's school openings because you're right, Becca, there are going to be students that are going to be severely left behind through this season who may not have the privilege of having a parent at home to help them with their schoolwork. I can tell you having four kids in three different uh, grade levels of school. I have two in elementary, one in middle, and one in high school. <laughs> and my wife um, and I are very fortunate that she can stay home with our kids while I'm at the school, helping facilitate you know, educators to educate in a digital way, right? Yeah. But that's not everybody's story. That's not everybody's story. And so you have If you notice, every grocery store is open, every gas station is open, Right. every job that is uh, providing a service of some sort, basically the working class of our economy is not at home. Nope. They are all considered essential because people got to have gas. Mm -hmm. So you got to be at the gas station. People Mm -hmm. have to eat. So the grocery stores must be open. And not only must they be open, the truck drivers who deliver the food must continue to operate. And so these people are still fully engaged. My father was a truck driver for 35 years. So when he drove long distance to provide services for others, that would be considered essential. I have friends and family members that are in medicine. They are at work. Their kids are at home. So the people that are performing the tasks that uphold our society are fully engaged for long hours. And their kids on the other hand, are at home. We have students here within our school that cannot do their schoolwork until their parents get home in the evening. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge disadvantage. So if you've spent the entire day at work at work, and now Johnny has to do math and Johnny has to read a short story and Johnny has to write a synopsis of what he just read, and you have to put this all into a digital format and then upload it to show proof that you did the work. Mm. That's hopefully not education. That is going through the process, going through the motions to check off a box. Next year, when Johnny goes to the next grade level, if there's not some semblance of grace afforded by the educators in that classroom that realizes that there's gonna be some things that Johnny and Susie's missed uh, this last year, in addition to the trauma, Let's talk about the trauma of being sequestered mm. in a home for 10 to 12 weeks. And that's just what we project at this moment. Oh, I know, right? That serious mental trauma that is going to plague these children. And in addition to that, it's like, let's just talk about the... Well, maybe we shouldn't talk about it. I don't know. We can talk about uh, it.
0: <laughs> Come now, say 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 it. Come on now, say that. Come on.
2: I've got students that are Asian that uh, they're feeling uh, far away, they're attacked and their parents are shutting down businesses for fear of persecution mm-hmm. by, uh, by citizens and so yeah. that, that brings an entire different discomfort that at this stage of my life I don't have to deal with
0: mm-hmm.
2: I am not currently under attack and by under attack I mean persecution is an attack, I may not be physically being beaten but mentally that takes a toll and so when I spoke to one of my students yesterday who informed me that their parents had to shut down their restaurant because of some, some perceivable threats, that concerns me because now that's gonna play into their financial standard. Yep. And that's gonna play into those students, the three of them at their home, on their emotional standing. And those things bother me. And so I think this point in history that we've never seen before, I've never lived through a pandemic, a global experience mm-hmm. uh, this is going to change a lot of things for us i think this is for us in america's context a worldwide 9-11 mm-hmm. yeah everything changed after mm. 9-11 on 9-10 2001 you can go straight to the airport and walk right up to the gate and look at your 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 bestie get on a plane
0: mm-hmm. 9-12 <laughs> no
2: <Nope. laughs> there were uh metal detectors armed guards and here in 2020 that has not changed Mm -mm. but students that were born in that time frame they've only known the airport as the airport
0: yeah
1: i i I remember like it was used to be me and my parents favorite thing to do when i was a kid is just to go into the airport see the planes get pushed back or go meet friends at the gate when they got off i mean it was so different and i live in that space where i'm i'm young enough and old enough just to like remember both um but even even when you're talking about like this mirrored emotion and people's ability to empathize it just speaks so much to how our as a society we continue to vilify uh poverty mm. and we continue to vilify uh anything that's not white (laughs)
0: Mm, yeah and that narrative is continually being spoken and heard more than any other narrative because that is still where the money is the capital is is in that narrative and we have to change that
1: thanks for listening we'll see you back for part
0: two